Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 248, To Arms. Agora, Podcaster of the Month, is my partner in the criminal activity, that is, the Things That Made England podcast, namely Royfield Brown. Royfield also has a show called Dumpty Dum, all about the archers, and a show called Ten American Presidents. Go and have a look at agorapodcastnetwork.com. And while we're at it, go and find Things That Made England as well, on Facebook is Best or iTunes. At the time of speaking, we have an episode out about Scar, and it will be English accents next time. And then secondly, let me remind you of the chance to learn about the great works that changed history by going to onlinegreatbooks.com. And also, you can get a discount by going to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ref forward slash ENG and entering the promotional code ENG to get 25% off your first three months. Now then everyone, let's saddle up and go to war at last. The overall strategy had been set in 1543. England to attack from Calais and strike hard and fast eastwards towards Paris. Charles V to attack from the east and strike hard and fast westwards towards Paris. Emperor and English king would shake hands over the Seine and the fallen, broken body of Francis I. Cry St. George for Harry and England. Hurrah! It would be fair to say that this is not necessarily a very new or inventive plan, but it was a plan. And it is an enormous compliment to the powers of both Henry and Charles that they were able to suspend their cynicism, and that they did not, right from the start, assume that it would all end up with somebody bailing out on somebody else at the critical moment. So, there was a nice sketched outline all ready and prepared, the big picture, as it were, but now it needed someone to do the colouring in, the detail, as it were. And there was more of a problem, honestly, because there were a few personal considerations that were getting in the way. The Privy Council did their level best to find ways to persuade Henry that really... He ought not to go in person without saying, look, sir, your personal investment in supporting the pie industry over the last few years really means you can hardly move and you need to concentrate on the strategy, not the implementation. So there was then a rather uncomfortable period when Henry tried to persuade Charles not to be there in person so that he too, Henry, could stay at home by the fire, eat pies and not lose face. Not to mention then all the strategic mathering that was holding everybody off. So, OK, we're all supposed to march on Paris, but what about our supply lines? Maybe we'd get cut off. Henry was seriously considering capturing a couple of bases on the coast to secure his back, before, gloriously and decisively, striking hard and fast at Paris. While all the mathering was happening, Norfolk and Suffolk had taken the army over to France, 40,000 of them, supplied with food and gear by Stephen Stockfish. They had a couple of problems. Firstly, Stephen Stockfish was no Cardinal Wolsey. 
The Privy Council was bombarded with letters from Norfolk about the beer was running out or the, or the bread was missing, what have you. Secondly, Norfolk didn't yet know where he was going, and look, hanging around outside Calais with 40,000 armed men wasn't ideal. Fortunately, finally the mathering stopped, and Henry did make a final decision. The army was to march southwards, down the French coast, arm in arm, to the seaport of Boulogne, where Norfolk was to wave cheerily to Suffolk, and with half the army would march further south down the coast of Montreuil-sur-Mer, and take that as well. So much for the striking hard and fast at Paris. While Suffolk and Norfolk marched off to their respective destinies, why don't we fill in the time by talking about Henry's army? We have something of the same problem here as we have with most subjects about how Henry, a push-me-pull-me debate about whether Henry was this great strategic genius who transformed the English military and navy, or something of a pathetic loser who achieves nothing let an out-of-date army and whose memory must be ground into the mud under the heel of history. The former strategic genius argument has clearly been kicked into touch, and it would be a bit surprising to see it return. The latter theory is rather closer, sadly, but it often gets taken way too far in our modern desire to denigrate Henry VIII. Henry's army was different in important ways to continental armies, and it might be surprising actually if it had not been. Much scorn is poured on Henry's military efforts, and in terms of scale, the amount of material spent on the activity forms a small wart on the continental buttock of war, three very limited wars in France, some operations in Ireland and Scotland. We'll hear before long of the financial impact of even this limited effort. Small wonder that military development was slower in England than on the continent. Partly this was about professionalism. Since the end of the 15th century, the French, for example, had had a standing army, permanent professional soldiers, and the Spanish had not been far behind. As we discussed in the previous episode, this led to the development in tactics that created the wonder of the military century, the Spanish tercio. Pikemen, swordsmen and musketeer combined. But it also led to a more general professionalisation in the development of tactics, logistics, financing. In England, meanwhile, the army was raised by a combination of a militia system, a public system, and a quasi-feudal system of provision by Henry's great men and their tenants. The cost of raising militia bands by local communities, armed and equipped as commanded, could bite deep into local finances. Many parishes during the recruitment for the 1544 army had to use plate from their parish churches to pay for them. The English army that landed in France, and which is now marching southwards in our memory as we speak, was 40,000 or so strong. And of those 40,000, 28,000 were English footmen organised into companies theoretically of 400, but in practice the size of the companies varied widely from between 1 and 400 strong. The composition of those footmen shows both an awareness of modern tactics and of England's failure to quite march in step with continental practice. Firstly, because only 2,000 of those men were armed with handguns, and maybe as many as 3 or 4 to 1 of those troops carried the traditional English billhook rather than the much longer pike. Although older, and you might say out of date, the billhook gave an advantage in manoeuvrability, but you paid a big price in reach. And so, once you were in push of pike, as it was known, pikemen against pikemen, the billman was in danger of meeting the debt collection department, big time. Plus, the English army would still contain some bowmen. Flodden is often quoted as the last battle on English soil, where the longbow was the principal weapon, 
But though not the principal weapon, Henry VIII's Statute of 1515 after Flodden had required everyone to practice the longbow and for butts to be provided. I'm told this is an act that has never been repealed. I do not know if this is true, but I should be checking this weekend and may well bring some prosecutions so get out there with your longbow or else. English cavalry, meanwhile, had moved with the times. By and large, except for a small contingent around Henry, the heavily armoured medieval knight or man-at-arms was gone. In their place was the demi-lance, armoured with a corslet only or three-quarters army and an unarmoured horse. The demi-lance carried a light lance and they began to carry pistols as well and were the most professional of the cavalry, probably making up about one-fifth of them. The mass of the cavalry was provided by the county militias and came under all sorts of names. Javelins, prickers, northern spears or border horse, for example. They also had a light lance and one pistol, sometimes a small oval shield as well, and they wore a male shirt. I have no doubt they all claimed to be the very best in their own local traditions. Maybe the borders had the best claim, since they spent a fair proportion of their life in action anyway, locally. They claimed in particular to be able to spear salmon from the saddle, and this was before the days of tinned salmon. The cavalry would be organised into bands or cornets or squadrons of a 100 horsemen, later being reduced to 50. Going back to those numbers, 28,000 English foot, I said, and the army, 40,000. So that gives you an idea that there must have been a fair old contingent hired from abroad. And you would be right to so guess. Henry would hire Swiss and German pikemen and German and Burgundian cavalry. This was not necessarily a sign of weakness. Mercenaries formed a central part of most continental armies. And they were also a source of information sharing about continental military developments for the English. So the overall picture is indeed one of a slightly out-of-date English military, but let us leaven the bread a little. Henry was an interested and active military leader. He was aware of the issues. He did take some action to close that gap, at least to some degree. He made some attempt to make sure the English armies were properly armed, importing a large quantity of artillery, pike and handguns. He also invested in the armoury at the tower to produce homegrown artillery in particular, and the armoury became increasingly professional. The career of one Christopher Morris is a good example of a careerist, who rose to be Master of the Ordnance in 1536, having started just as a lowly gunner. Though it must be said, his career was a little exceptional, being replaced by the safely aristocratic Thomas Seymour in 1544. But Morris did things like establishing standard manning levels at castles and forts, establishing secure sources of military equipment and raw materials. By and large, meanwhile, the English use of artillery was perfectly modern and competent, and English practice did develop, such as in the combination of pike and shot, signals with drums, the use of artillery in field fortifications. There was a greater continuity of service among commanders, garrison troops in places like London, Berwick and Calais, and greater continuity of service amongst administrators. It doesn't do to overemphasise it. England and Henry were far from being leaders in the art, but nor was the English military so backwards as to be uncompetitive. We should talk about Henry and the Navy as well, but let's leave that for a few minutes because Suffolk has arrived in front of the walls of Boulogne, so we'd better get on with it. In July 1544, despite the pleadings of his Privy Council, Henry arrived in Calais himself, ready to lend his expertise and weight to the campaign. While he was away, 
he appointed his new queen, Catherine, as regent, and Catherine took an active part in working with the Privy Council and communicating with her husband. And meanwhile, her husband, from July to September, just had a blast, with the royal equivalent of a train set, messing about with siege dispositions and engines, the tinkerman of the 16th century, and no doubt he drove Suffolk absolutely potty. But look, Ill and overweight he might have been, but rather like the early days of his romance with Catherine Howard, Henry was a man revived, hauling himself up onto his horse, cutting a dash in his new armour, dashing around like a mad thing and all that. Charles and the imperialists also went a little potty in a different way, complaining, this was not the plan, follow the plan, we agreed hard and fast, Paris not messing about building sandcastles on the beaches. Henry dismissed their complaints airily, pointing out that his army would be no use to them without adequate supplies. Meanwhile in Italy, French forces had defeated an imperial army. But fortunately for Charles was now bogged down amongst the imperial fortresses of Lombardy. Charles's own invasion towards Paris got a bit bogged down itself outside the town of Saint-Dizier, but then it got going again until he hit the fortress of Soissons. But, you know, that was within 65 miles of Paris. On the 18th of September, 1544, Boulogne finally surrendered hooray for Harry and St George and all that, and Henry duly wallowed in the triumph like a pig in, well, like a pig having a really nice time. Back at Montreuil, Norfolk was having a good deal less fun than Harry was having at Boulogne. And then, Henry received the news that Charles and Francis had stitched up a deal. They'd stitched up a what? A deal, sire. Sorry, sire. As he left France, Charles waved an airy diplomatic hand to say, Where were you then? Hard and fast at Paris, remember? And suddenly Henry and England were on their own, in a cage with a very big, very angry gorilla, eyeing them in a very unfriendly kind of way. The Dauphin of France, Henry, soon to be Henry II of France, came tearing across from the east with a very big army, all ready to knock seven bells out of the English. As they approached the west coast, they were forced to block their ears from the noise of the knocking of English knees. Henry discovered a very important business back in England, and actually he made the right decision militarily, telling Norfolk to extricate himself from the siege at Montreuil immediately, and for both Norfolk and Suffolk to defend Boulogne. Norfolk and Suffolk did no such thing, leaving 4,000 men in Boulogne and sending the rest home or to Calais on the basis that if they did not, they'd all have died. It was all a little undignified. Henry was livid and the French came very close to regaining Boulogne straight away, but just failed since the Dauphin's army got distracted at the critical moment by a looting opportunity. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Negotiations between England and France then started quite quickly, led by Edward Seymour and William Paget. William Paget being a particularly important politician in the last years of Henry's reign, who we must talk about. And then, into these negotiations, delightfully, 
Charles appeared as a mediator. Really, I can't imagine why Charles thought this would be a good idea. Henry was simply enraged, given that in his view, Charles had just deserted him. So in what way was he meant to be an honest broker then? So most of the negotiations became absolutely diverted by the English and the imperial mediators throwing things at each other, metaphorically speaking. There's not a lot to choose between the two, to be honest, though Charles did have one legitimate cause for complaint. Because in December 1544, Henry issued a proclamation. A proclamation that allowed his subjects to follow unrestricted private warfare at sea. The ostensible target of this privateering was probably going to be France. But given Henry's feeling about Charles's antagonism, he probably wasn't too upset when English privateers laid about them with gay abandon, robbing friend and foe alike. One of the folks to profit from this was one William Hawkins. William Hawkins is the father of John Hawkins, one of our most famous pirates. Oops, did I say pirate? I mean one of our most famous naval commanders. William Hawkins will be a fine example of the spirit of the age, a leading citizen and merchant of Plymouth, an MP, noted for violently bullying his way into power, but a remarkable sailor, who traded as far abroad as Peru, defying Henry's lack of interest in global exploration. And so now in 1544 and in 1545, Hawkins and others were given carte blanche to raid much closer to home, and they attacked Spanish ships with every bit as much glee as they did French and Scottish. It's worth remembering that the Channel was as important a stretch of water to the Empire as it was for England. The Low Countries were the richest and most important part of Charles's Empire, and communication was far easier between Spain and the Low Countries by sea than it was by land, so this was really serious stuff to Charles V. Meanwhile then, the negotiations with France founded essentially on Henry's refusal to give up his bauble, Boulogne. And so, in, as 1545 got underway, England was at war on her own with France. And France was big and rich, and for once, undistracted. Now England, if we're honest, had never really been important enough for Francis to have a go at. But now, well, why the devil not? Nothing else going on, lazy Sunday afternoon and all that. A very large fleet was gathered on the French coast, around 200 ships. 30 of these are warships, plus 25 galleys brought up from the Mediterranean, and up to 50,000 men waiting to be ferried across the Channel to ravage and despoil the peaceable and home-loving English. Let's talk now about Henry's navy then, shall we? Now is the time. Yemen, Henry VIII, has traditionally been seen as the father of the British Navy, a far-sighted visionary who saw the importance of sea power and so sat down carefully one Sunday afternoon with a piece of paper and said, right, what we need is brilliant warships like this, fine, and then we'll do new armaments like that, okay, and, ooh, administrative change, that's what we need as well. Here's a new structure we can use. The claim to be father of the British Navy is one that has also been made for Alfred the Great, Athelstan the Glorious, Edgar the Peaceable, because who would want to take on someone when they had such a big navy, Richard I, Henry V, and James IV of Scotland. Nowadays, you will not be surprised to learn that this is no longer the preferred story. No one believes anymore that Henry was capable of strategic thought. And anyway, there's no evidence of such a sure, thoughtful, and strategic guiding hand, which of course is the sort of behaviour of which fathers are well known. And of course, all-seeing strategic geniuses in history are far and few, far and few. 
and that change in Henry VIII's navy, it came about piecemeal, haltingly, in reaction to events. And by the time of his death, Henry could make no claims to English naval supremacy of the narrow seas even. So, there we are, everyone, in familiar territory. The great man of Whiggish history plays postmodern revisionism. And as normal, I suspect, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. That Henry does indeed show very few attributes of a far-sighted visionary and planner, but nonetheless he did recognise the importance of the navy and of the narrow seas to England. He did make provision for an enhanced navy. There was clear evidence of naval innovation, and by the end of his reign there were the beginnings of a permanent administration that was almost unique in Europe. At the start of Henry's reign, then, Henry's admirable Howard found out to his cost that the northern sailing ship the Cog and the Carrack faced a great challenge from their old adversary the Mediterranean Galley. You may remember that in 1512 Howard had been killed in a naval battle against the French, isolated from his fellow Englishmen who declined to row over to the galleys in small boats to join his attempt to board the French galleys, which was, for them, a pretty good decision, though a poor career move for Howard. You might wonder how Howard had managed to get himself into such a mess. After all, one of the advantages of the sailing ship, especially the Carrack, was supposed to be that its high aft castles towered above the galleys, which, designed as they were to be powered by oar as well as by sail, were therefore much lower in the water and much lighter. And so, in said towering above, you could rain down a deadly hail of arrows and so on before jumping securely into your opponent's boat and mopping up those that had not been sufficiently hailed upon. The problem was that with the improvement of artillery, galleys were now able to mount big guns in the bow of the ship and in the stern, and by this I mean big, bronze, muzzle-loaded cannon. Now, the normal mode of naval warfare was that your ships still approached each other abreast, bows facing towards the enemy. We, or at least I, tend to think of the order of battle, the natural order of battle, being in line of battle. Ships all in a line, each presenting their broadside to each other as they pass. I think that's because it's what you see with Nelson and all that, the heyday of British Navy sailing ships. But such was not the case back in medieval days or in Henry's reign. What happens then was that your bow faced the enemy until you came alongside You then fired off your bow chasers as you approached, you came alongside your targeted enemy and you discharged your broadside guns before leaping athletically aboard your opponent, presumably uttering a blood-curdling cry as you did so, and have at you. And the assumption in this is that the artillery you're firing in that were not the ship killers that we all think about when we think of HMS Victory and Nelson and Trafalgar and all that stuff. These are much lighter, breech-loading guns, designed primarily to kill people to sweep the deck so that when you do that leap with associated, if optional, blood-curdling cry, you had a better chance of not simply landing on a waiting Frenchman's pike. Now, the innovation of adding ship killers to the bows of the galley had some problems for them. It made the bow heavier. It made the galley less manoeuvrable. It made the galley heavier. Changes had to be made. Venice, Spain, France needed more oarsmen now because the galleys were bigger They needed more power to make them go, and therefore they began to use slaves and convicts to power their galleys. Before we get all holier than thou, by the way, in 1548-1593, the English passed laws to allow the same thing to happen. But as it happens, using convicts and slaves proved impractical in England, and so they remained powered by free men. English galleys did, by the way. Anyway, 
Since the vast majority of conflicts at sea took place in inshore waters, the benefit of placing big guns in the bows outweighed the disadvantages because of that critical advantage that you could fire in the direction of the coming battle and fire shots that could damage and kill your opponent at distance. The best guns and galleys were probably still Venetian and they could open up with confidence 500 yards away. You could cause a lot of damage and kill a lot of men on a carrack before they could come alongside and by the time they did arrive they may no longer have anyone capable of leaping anywhere and the cries would be anything but blood-curdling. Basically, Howard's colleagues didn't want to get too close. Henry's navy in 1545 reflected the attempt to respond to the challenge of the galley. Firstly, there was simply the number of ships that Henry had available. He acquired seven ships from his dad, Henry VII, remembering that medieval fleets were basically merchant ships pressed into service for the crown, and indeed the vast majority of both English and French fleets were the same in this. So when I say seven ships, I don't mean that the Admiral John Dudley Viscount Lyle had only seven ships as 200 Frenchmen bore down on him, So when I say seven ships, I don't mean that there were literally in a fleet in 1509 only seven ships. The seven in 1509 were royal ships, permanently on duty ships, paid for by the crown ships. By the time of Henry's death in 1547, he had a fleet of 54 ships. Viscount Lyle faced 200 French ships with 80 in total, including privateers that he added to the 54. The point is, there was a massive increase in the size of the permanent navy, and this alone might be enough to garland Henry's podgy brows with fine herbs and vine leaves, or whatever garlands are made of. The types of ship were also now much more broad and varied. There is just a, well, I mean, just amazing record made by a Dutchman of Henry's navy, which said Dutchman presented to Henry in 1546. It was originally made on vellum, and it's a pictorial record of every one of those ships made by this Dutchman, one Antonius Antonizoon. It's the kind of historical document that makes you dribble, ladies and gentlemen. As I write, my keyboard is covered in a gentle mist. I went and bought an associated book showing all these pictures for 35 quid. Good Lord, that was painful, but worth every penny. Almost equally amusing is that the English struggled a little bit with the noble name of Antonius Antonizoon and called him Antony Antony. I apologise as a nation. We're pathetic at foreign languages. Anyway, the ships demonstrate that English shipyards had indulged in a blizzard of innovation and Henry had brought over the best Italian and French shipwrights to help him try to catch up with foreign practice. So, you had traditional but improved and modified carracks like the Peter Pomegranate and the Mary Rose, which were improved and rebuilt later in Henry's reign. Put away the idea that the English simply created the galley and the long, slim ship with the massive broadside that blew galleys out of the water. Nope, that's much later. But there is a start. Ships do start to be longer and slimmer, with what I think I haven't had for many decades, a discernible waist. But ships like the Mary Rose had not solved the problems of housing bow-loaded ship-killer guns. The problem was that with the heavy forecastles of the Carrick and a ship designed for sail rather than oars, you could not load big heavy cannon on the bows. You could put them on the stern, fair enough, but not the bows. The closest they came was to have heavy cannon on the aft castle at the back of the ship. So they'd put the cannon there at the back of the ship, facing forward, and they'd fire in an arc along and over the length of the ship, 
But this wasn't the best solution. Jolly nervy making firing over your own ship. And there was a big blind spot in front of you anyway. Some ships simply put some heavy cannon at the front of the waist, canted them as far forward as possible, which is also a pretty feeble solution. Nonetheless, these are sailing ships and big, powerful man-killers at least, if not ship-killers yet. So the Mary Rose, for example, had 81 guns, though only four of them were of the ship-killing variety. And she used a permanent gun deck now with brand new closable gun ports, which is a new innovation. In addition to the new star carracks, there are row barges, which are essentially floating gun emplacements, which the English decided later were too rubbish and too exposed, and the French were actually rather impressed with. Then there were English galleys, which the English Navy continued to use, so it's not just a Mediterranean thing. And finally, galleasses. Galleasses were an attempt to chart a middle ground between galley manoeuvrability and sailing ship size and speed. Big sailing ships, essentially, with supplementary oars. So this variety in the English Navy says two things. Firstly, no one had found the answer to the galley loaded with ship-killing guns yet. But secondly, Henry's reign saw a lot of innovation and investment and ended the reign with a navy as impressive as any in northern waters. And then there was naval administration. So let me introduce you to a man who will be part of our story for the next fun-packed eight years or so, and on whose head we will pour approbation and scorn, probably in equal measure. I speak of John Dudley. John Dudley, would you believe, was the son of our very own Edmund Dudley, you know, of Empsom and Dudley fame. He was born in 1504, and the attainder his father had earned was reversed, which is kind of normal. And rather than harbouring a festering hatred of the Tudors and all their house for killing his pa, he did what the vast majority did in such circumstances and set about redeeming the name of his family through service to the crown. He served in the Pale of Calais. He serves in France in 1523. He paid off his father's fines. He sat in the Reformation Parliament. He was Anne of Cleves' master of horse. I mean, he's a right busy bee, the lad. In 1543, he was elevated to the peerage as Viscount Lyle by right of his wife. He then became Lord Admiral, he was a Warden of the Northern Marches, and he was part of Hertford's invasion fought into Scotland, he was appointed to the Privy Council, he was appointed Governor of Boulogne in 1544. A middle-ranking courtier had slowly become one of the kingdom's political leaders, and a thoroughly competent one at that. I introduce Viscount Lyle so that we can talk about the forthcoming battle. And of course, battles are very important, but even more important here is administration. Though it's not quite clear whether it's Henry or Lyle who gets the credit. So probably both, but Henry gets credit anyway for being the boss. I speak of something which will probably not excite you very much, but really should excite you very much indeed. It is called the Council of the Marine. The Council of the Marine is not a name that will excite you and which will not remain but it will become the Navy Board. And for the first time, there is a settled, permanent organisation whose job it is to make sure the Navy is in good shape in the sense of construction and maintenance. It is almost unique in early modern Europe, Venice accepted. That's all I'll say here, except one other thing. The individuals at the people of the Council of the Marine have a combination of private and public roles that the term modern eye looks deeply corrupt and terribly bad practice. So, private merchants would be supplying the materials the Navy needed, and you can guess they might just win that contract since they're sitting on the Navy board. 
and that some of those materials, of course, also got diverted along the way. But of course, in the early modern world, this was totally normal. And look, there was one massive advantage. The English Navy was not looked after by aristocratic amateurs out to do nothing more than prove that they were fulfilling the demands of their sinecure. It was looked after by professionals. Professionals who really understood and knew their business. One more thing for which Henry should get some credit. At the start of Henry's reign, most of the bronze cannon, the ship-killer type, were imported, had to be imported. By the early 1540s, the vast majority of those cannon were made in England. And even more importantly, the iron industry of the Weald in southern England was commissioned to experiment with gunfouding. And the search for cheap, strong, light iron cannon, much cheaper to make, to replace the hideously expensive bronze cannon shipkiller, was on. Not here yet, but it's on. It is also worth mentioning that since 1536, Henry had commissioned a series of forts along the south coast called the Device Programme. If you want to see one of them, Hurst Castle is a very good example, but don't go expecting to enjoy the elegance and beauty of, say, I don't know, a Warwick Castle. I hope I will not offend too many to say that it's a pug-ugly castle and illustrates in a small way how gunpowder and artillery dramatically changed castle architecture. Gone are the high and relatively thin walls of the castle, whose only challenger was a stone-throwing trebuchet or the like. With the modern castle and fort, walls needed to be yards and yards thick. Hurst Castle is a very cold military place, no less fascinating for it, of course. I might note in passing that it also illustrates how artillery cut the knees off the idea of baronial revolt. It's axiomatic that the Tudor nobility by now had abandoned their old drafty medieval castles for the comfort of palaces and stately homes. But even if they had not, their old castles were militarily obsolete anyway. So look, to conclude, everyone else can say what they like, but hate him or loathe him, Henry VIII surely wins the father of the British Navy Award. The great developments made by each of the other contenders fades away after their death. But after Henry, England is never again left without a powerful and relatively well-run navy. That is surely enough for one week then. In 1545 then, just to summarise, England was in genuine peril yet again. Henry's foreign policy had not been a great success, unless you call the tenuous possession of Boulogne sufficient prize for the armada that was heading towards it. 12,000 English soldiers sat on the border with Scotland. 30,000 sat in the south of England, all waiting for the French invasion. 200 French ships came towards them with 50,000 men on board. On the 19th of July, 1545, while Henry was on his flagship, the Great Harry, the French fleet was seen in the Solent. Battle was about to be joined, and at the risk of irritating you, we will hear about how it went for Henry and company next time. Don't forget to think about whether this is the time to become a member of the History of England. There are, yep, there are slots still available at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Hurry, hurry, hurry. And I hope you have a week as bodacious as you could ever imagine. Good luck, everyone. I have a fine Sen night. Ever. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.